ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You love good, deep conversations, right? Let me tell you about my podcast. I'm Fran Kelly and I'm fascinated with friendship and the people we come to think of as our chosen family. I'll be having some long and very personal conversations with pairs of friends within the queer community. Join me as I talk to Narelda Jacobs, Courtney Act, Josh Thomas, Danny Laidley, Ida Buttrose and more. Just search for Yours Queerly, hit that little plus sign and follow along in the ABC Listen app. A special podcast bonus from the archives for you this week. It's my conversation with author Trent Dalton. Today, Trent lives in a house full of women, but much of his growing up was in an entirely male household, where Trent learned to become a quiet and watchful child, a careful observer of the drama going on all around him. When he became a journalist, Trent won plenty of awards for his feature writing, astute and sympathetic observations of everyday people in extraordinary circumstances. Then, in 2018, when we had this conversation, Trent had released his first novel, Boy Swallows Universe. It was partly based on his own childhood in the outer suburban fringes of Brisbane. Boy Swallows Universe went on to become a massive bestseller all over the world, and now the TV series of the novel is being watched worldwide on Netflix. Trent's latest novel, his third, is called Lola in the Mirror. But all of this is a life he never expected to be living. Hello, Trent. Welcome. Hi, Richard. Um, it's uh, for a long-form feature journalist to be here. It's uh, the equi- equivalent of going to Disneyland, mate. So uh, it's a pleasure <laughs> to be here. Let's go right at the very, to the very start here. What would be your earliest memory that you have? My earliest memory? Um, this is as far back as I can go. I'm four years old. Picture a, a, a weatherboard, uh, weather-beaten um, home in southeast Queensland on the outskirts of Brisbane in a little place called Ipswich. Um, I'm sitting on a brown leather lounge. I'm in a brown and yellow T-shirt. I look at my right thumb. There's a freckle on it. And I will look at that freckle for the rest of my life. And I look to my left and there's a man sitting to the left of me. And this man has red hair and he's got tattoos all over himself and uh, he's got muscles and he's wearing a Jackie House singlet and he's wearing thongs. And I turn to this man and I say, I love you, Dad. And this, this man turns to me and smiles and he ruffles my hair and he says, I love you too, mate, but I'm not your dad. So that's as early as I go. And that man was a man that, that man was the first man I probably ever loved. The first um, man who ever guided me, who ever gave me wisdom, who ever showed me how to live. Um, and that was a man that my mum had fell, fell in love with deeply. And I think really in many ways probably still loves, and it probably was the love of her life. But, uh, that, that love story was complicated because that man had, uh, p- perhaps more than one foot, uh, in Queensland's criminal underworld. So, um, it made for an interesting childhood, most definitely. And, and did you know that as a little boy? Not at all, mate. So I guess... A lot of my life, I'm one of those kids who were going to be told everything when he grew up. Uh, I'm one of those kids who, you know, Trent, I'll tell you when you're older, all about that. Uh, I sense stuff. There were, there were little, there were little signals. There were little moments around this particular house. My three beautiful older brothers and I lived in, um, for, for about four years. Um, I was very young. I'm the youngest of four boys. Um, there were little signs I should have known. Um, you know, one day my, 
my brother uh, taps me on the shoulder and he says, mate, come, come have a look at this. And I'm like, what, what? You know, I'm just a kid. I'm like five years old. Uh, very impressionable. I'll follow my brothers anywhere. And I still do. I still would. Um, and they, they, they walk me through the house and we come to a room and uh, we walk into this room and there's a glass sliding door. And this is my memory of this, Richard. Uh, my brother slides that glass sliding door open. He gets down on his knees and moves some clothes aside. He puts his hand out and he taps the back of an internal wardrobe. And this internal wardrobe, the back of it has a compression sort of mechanism and the wall pops back out. And my brother leans his head into a chasm, which is an underground secret room. An underground secret room? An underground secret room, Richard. In Ipswich? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and what was in that, that secret room? Well, my brother went in and my next older brother, Jesse, we, we hung back. I was always the last to, to go in on these adventures. And, uh, but my brothers went in first and inside this room was a red telephone. There was nothing but a red telephone. And I never knew why that existed, Richard. And, uh, and I probably didn't find out until I was much older and sitting around numerous suburban tables and, um, people like my dad, my real dad, my dear beloved real dad telling me that, well, you know, that guy who you love and, um, my old man cared about this guy a little bit too. He didn't mind him. He, he gave him the time of day, um, well, he was into some interesting activities and uh, he might have needed a, a secret room to do all sorts of interesting stuff that uh, involved his kind of um, his day job. Was that a panic room, do you think? Or, it, 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 look, my, my, my suspicion, because I, I barely, I've quizzed my, my, my mum about this and uh, I've tried to ask every person I know. My suspicion is that it was a panic room and that it was if, if, uh, if things went down in that particular world, this man probably could have gone there and um, either hit away or contacted someone to, um, you know, when he was in a jam. So things went bad with your mum and, and this guy. So you went to live with your dad for a while. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and you and your brothers did. And your grandparents as well. Tell me about these grandparents of yours. Well, so you go from that world, from this kind of strange world where all these people are coming and going. And some of those people who are coming and going to that Ipswich house were, you know, they'd go on to be pretty sort of, notorious kind of criminal figures. And uh, so then switch to northern suburbs of Brisbane, the most beautiful suburb called Sandgate, right on the water, seaside community, um, a, a rat of Tobruk war veteran grandfather uh, with, with a wooden leg um, pushing around my beautiful dear Nan, Beryl, uh, who, who suffered polio a lot, you know, for all of her life and, uh, you know, was bound to a wheelchair. And, um, you know, a very strong religious household, um, um, you know, a, a, a quiet, sombre, um, pious man named Victor Dalton, my beautiful granddad. Um, really it was a leading, to Brook, you say? A right. to Brook, to Brook, who lost his leg, got shot in a you know, incredibly bloody battle called Operation Belimba, saved by a man who got shot in the process of dragging granddad through concertina wire, a man who lived with a lot of... I believe a lot of guilt for surviving, surviving, and um, and really wore that quietly and dignified in a in a dignified way. But he was just this beautiful guy. He sat in the corner as I, my brothers and I were playing, you know, playing games on the on the carpet, and we wouldn't even know he was there for 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 you know hours. We'd be playing, and he, but yet, and then he'd sort of let us lean on his wooden leg, and I'd, I'd let us sort of tap it, and yeah, amazing, amazing kind of world. And yeah, and then my old man was there for a while, and and they. 
they helped us kind of I don't know get our get back on our feet perhaps you might say until yeah there was it was a little sort of segue moment but that was the that, yeah, I got to spend some time with my grandparents. So you went from a house that was kind of like on the criminal fringe to this incredibly morally upright place oh, on, on my the coast. Grandad Vic was the president of the Sandgate RSL. You know, you could not find a better man. He did the books. He volunteered to do the accounting accounting on the local church books, did it on his spare time. He he worked for the tax tax office. You know, you could not... He, he I believe, had... He got saved by this extraordinary man named Reg Coyne who got that bullet saving Grandad, and I guarantee you... Granddad felt for the rest of his life that he would give no matter what, and um, he gave to that Sandgate community. Yeah. So, so after a while, your dad got a place for for you yeah. and, and your brothers. So, yeah. So there's like your dad, you, and three brothers. So there's what five guys in this uh, five boys and, and a five man. guys, five guys, mate. Um, eventually, and- we moved into a place. Uh, yeah, housing commission place. You know, dad's raising four kids on his own, right? For for a long time. Like I was raised by my old man, and uh, tough to get a job. You know, it's tough to get a gig when you, you're kind of raising four boys who are kind of aged, you know, what, everything from eight to about, it got to about 16. So there's a broad spectrum there. And he's, he's trying to manage all this. Hard to get a job, hard to get cash. We're, we're living in, you know, housing commission properties where you, you, you know, God bless the housing commission. You can live, um, you know, renting a house for $50 a week back then. Um, and look, I mean, blokes. Yeah. We, we, we picture my, my next brother, Jesse, beautiful Jesse, who is, you know, picture Oscar Wilde. If Oscar Wilde was forced to grow up in Brisbane's housing commission, that's Jesse. <laughs> um, my next brother, Ben, who's like the wise, deep cavernous mind. He's like Ben, but he's old Ben Kenobi, that guy in the brown hood. And then there's my, you know, dear man, Joel, who's basically King Arthur, right? He's he's King Arthur and he's like the guy protecting us all in our little Camelot in Shitsville Housing Commission. But he protected us and got us and, you know, I owe that guy my life in many ways. Tell me about your dad's ritual that he would observe every morning upon waking up. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, well so my, my old man's like, so picture Steve McQueen, right? So crew cut sort of, you know, back when he had hair, you know, short hair, you know, tats. Jackie House singlet, similar to the redhead guy from, you know, when I was five. But, uh, you know, and picture him at uh, at midnight probably too, like, you know, on the Terps and just looking looking at a screen. That's, I've got this, you know, I'm just seeing him in darkness, looking at a static black and white television screen that's just playing static and Leonard Cohen's on the, uh, on the stereo. In the mornings though, you know, dad was just this beautiful, um, I don't know, quiet kind of guy who just who just read books, Richard. He just, he, he, he read books like nobody's business. Right. So what he would do, he would wake up and, you know, this is my, this is, this is you know, I have these vivid memories, my old man. I, and I walk in on him and he's there and he's, he's rolling, you know, he'd smoke drum, the roll your own, you know, tobacco. And he would roll 20, roll your own cigarettes, lay them all out on the bed and just do some hard reading for the next six hours. Hard reading. Reading, just reading and smoking, mate. Just reading and smoking, you know. Just so like, he'd get up or cough, roll 20 durries and then, and then read a book. Yeah, yeah. If he was having a good reading day, he, he, you know, my old man could read, you know, he could read for eight hours straight, you know, come out, say good day to us, get us off to school, um, you know, get, you know, do the dishes, clean the bathtub with the Ajax, um, you know, and then go back to a, you know, a thumping doorstopper novel and one of thousands that he read during his lifetime. Would, would he any? Would he fling any of these novels at you to read? Oh, mate, always, always. Like if you didn't read in my house, um, you know, you you know, life wasn't really worth living. And uh, I wasn't a great reader. My brothers are voracious readers, much better readers than I am. I was into like football books and stuff, but those boys, 
they were right into the doorstoppers as well. And so then, you know, you've got a picture of this, you know, five boys. We lived in a pink house because Dad painted the house with cheap paint, like he was a painter for a while there, like a house painter, and he got all this cheap paint off his mates. And, of course, you don't get to give away the good coloured paint. You give away the baby poo, you know, Brown. yellow. Yeah, right. You know, you, the, the pink, the hot pink, the peach. Yeah. There was a lot of peach in our right. house, Richard. Um, yeah, so, you know, and we're all these blokey blokes saying – horrible things to each other, just paying out on each other all day, but just loving every bit of it though, mate, every it, bit of it. It sounds like your dad struggled to find a bit of purchase in life. Why, why do you think he was a bit uh, depressive and a bit um, a bit aimless? Oh, wow. Um, that's a good question. Um, look, the truth is I think, okay, there's two parts to that. If I can, I'll, I'll tell the first one. The first bit is um, a love story. I think he, I think he adored my mum and he messed up. He messed up. When back when I can't remember, I wasn't old enough to sort of know this, but I think he he loved her dearly, and uh, he messed up with the love of his life, and um, and I think that really ate him up a bit. I think um, I think all of you know you know uh, you know like this guy's passed away. I love that guy. I love you so much, Dad. If you listen to this, but I, you know I'm here talking out of school about this beautiful man, but I don't think he'd mind. You know, like uh, he loved Mum so much, and. You know, he we'd we'd find him at night singing to her. You know, like he he'd be there on the piss and just howling for this woman. You know, in 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 song, and it was the funniest thing, but it was also sometimes the most moving thing and also the most tragic. You know, and uh, a woman that wasn't there, the woman that wasn't yeah. there. You know, and and I. And 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 I think he saw the life that could have been when they were together, and and they were raising these four boys who would have loved nothing more to be raised by them both. But but you know. Interesting enough, my old man passed away, sadly, you know, about four years ago. And, and one of his old Nasho mates, right? So dad was in the army and, and uh, he was all set. He was all set to go to Vietnam. And, you know, as I mentioned, the great Vic Dalton was a ratter to Brooke. And, you know, he did, granddad did wonderful, important things. And I think that always stayed with dad. And, and he was expecting to do the same he thing. He wanted to do the same thing. I really do think part of him really wanted to. And Did he end up going to Vietnam? Mate, he, the, 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 they pulled the Aussie troops out. He was on his way. Like he was, he had done the shots. He'd taken the shots. Like he'd, he'd, uh, he'd done the training. Like he was a Nasho. Like he's got a medal as a Nasho. But it's actually a big thing. It's actually yeah. something that for a lot of Vietnam guys who didn't, go to Vietnam and wearing the cost of not quite fitting into that national myth- mythology of the guys who did eventually go over. And I, Even the ones that did go and came back couldn't often find found they couldn't get respect from well, their father's generation exact, either. It, it, yeah. You're exactly right. Yeah. They, you're They'd exactly be told, right, oh, that wasn't a real war you were you, at. Yeah, exactly. It, was it wasn't a real war. So them. let alone you imagine if you didn't quite mm. go. But you still served, you know, and you, he, dad still did his bit. But I think his whole life kind of, that's a dangerous thing to be sort of aimless in 1970s Australia and be a young man and aimless, mate. You know, that, that's a dangerous thing. And, and uh, you know, and I always resented that. I always resented that thinking because he was such a good dad. And I always like, mate, what, what would you have preferred getting yourself blown to bits on the battlefield than raising these four boys who love you like nothing else? So your dad was had the job of doing the cooking for all you boys. <laughs> what, what, what did you eat? <laughs> Picture this house. Wheel of Fortune's just finished. Us four boys sitting around the lounge room. We're waiting, um, you know, we're waiting for dinner. Us boys are talking nonsense. Dad's in the kitchen. These housing commission homes were very small. They all look the same. Brown, brown sort of red brick. Um, there's a ramp going up the left. There's a big double sort of window at the front. There's a two-step porch <laughs> on the right. Every one of them. You go into all your mates' houses in Brackenridge, they were all the same. And, you'd, and everyone had the same, 
$200 Amart couch. It was Everything was the same in these places. <laughs> and there's Dad in the kitchen, and there's a chip fryer, right? We had this super fry fat that stayed in Dad's, <laughs> Dad's chip fryer for dead set, which was like a year. It, w- it would not get replenished for a year. Yeah, right. You wouldn't change the oil for oh, a year. Oh, no way, because it, ma- it it really infused the flavour yes, into course. the chip. You imagine these chips by the time Dad was... <laughs> nobody cooked hot chips like my old man, Richard. And... Uh, so what you know, dinner for us was pretty like it was it was it was fat hot chips, a fried egg, and lamb four, four quarter chops. So you could get you know a big tray of lamb four quarter chops from the local uh, food store down down the Barrett Street shops in Brackenridge. You could get a big bunch of lamb four quarter for about ten bucks. You know you could you could feed the kids for a whole week on those. And uh, yeah, and then that was dinner. And so then dad, you know, by almost you know. Basically, sale of the century. Dinner has to be done by sale of the century, right? So then it's like the call comes from Dad. All right, you lot, come get this shit. <laughs> and uh, and we'd what, march up. We'd what march a lovely up invitation. Go... <laughs> <laughs> it, really, it really inspires you right. for the meal that's to come, doesn't it? It's and this, really... this had to happen at the moment when Baby John Burgess took his leave from so, Wheel of Fortune to yeah, go into Tony John's, Barber. Ba- baby John Burgess is done. Right. The news is over. And then bang, mate. Bang, like, sale it's, of the it's century. Paradise. It's paradise. Tony Barber comes running out and the Dalton boys <laughs> sit down for another <laughs> night of sale of the century trivia competition. Would he ever catch any f- if fish or was he a, did that ever happen? Did he ever catch any, catch any food for you? Oh, well, you know, um, around Sandgate, it's paradise for a fisherman. My old man was probably most at home, was most at home. Well, look, I mean, he was most at home fishing. We, 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 you know, had a beautiful ceremony, my brothers and I, you know, putting his ashes in a place called Palmerston Passage near Bribey Island and on Bribey Island, and it's the most beautiful spot. But uh, another good place for those ashes would have been the mangroves down around Shawncliffe because that's where he was the best mornings in Brackenridge where... Me waking up, I'm having my wheat bix Dad walks up the ramp and he's got a green garden bin. It's like a garden, one of those big sort of plastic garden bins. And he goes, have a look at this. And he, and I, I, he opens up the black lid and there's like four of the fattest Queensland mud crabs you could ever see in your life, oh, Richard. Fantastic. And, you know, you just knew mm. we were going to eat like kings that night. The, the, the claws on these crabs, mate, were like they were as fat as Viv Richards' cricket bat in the 1980s. And uh, <laughs> that is as good eating as you're ever going to get in Brackenridge Housing Commission. How was your dad, though, once he um, started drinking of an evening? Would things get a bit darker after a few beers? Oh, mate, you know, after, you know, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, like not many too. Like it wouldn't take many... And you'd see it, like you could see it in Dad. Like he was one of those guys you could just, you could just see it come over the face, the darkness. And you was know, there the, an inclination to violence? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I, I think there were. Uh, look, you know, there were there were times where. Uh, look, I'll, I'll put it this way: this beautiful King Arthur guy, Joel, who uh, you know, I have. Hopefully, he wouldn't mind me saying that. You know, he definitely bore the brunt of you know some of that really darker side of Dad's, and um, you know. Uh, well, it was a regular thing in the Dalton household for to have to putty up holes in those those thin sort of walls because of people's heads did, did being all... hit in the holes. That sounds pretty graphic, but it, like that's a fact. It was just like a it was a pretty wild old house, you know. And we were just a bunch of Irish boys inside a house listening to too much pogues, led by a man who had a lot of demons, you know. And and it was and it was it was his great flaw, my old man, that that he would sort of channel. A lot of those demons and a lot of that stuff in into the wrong place, which was which was booze for for a while. He beat that, he beat that, and um, you know, towards the end of his life, he became the most amazing granddad to my kids. And 
But for a while there, yeah, mate, it was it was, was it was pretty messy. Was there a fair bit of violence in the, in the area? Yeah, I reckon that's that's fair to say. Would you um, see a bit of that in the streets? And now it's it's that? interesting. See, I know I've sp- spoken to people about their views on that particular housing commission area, and I don't know whether I'm seeing it through my eyes. You know, my eyes are different to everybody else's because they're coloured by things that were perhaps going on within my own brick wall. But you know, I would do it all the time. I'd go down and get Dad a packet of smokes or a pack of peanuts when he's on the drink and and I walk down these housing commission streets and you got a picture in full summer in Brackenridge in Brisbane it's hot you know it's sweltering kind of that that Brisbane humidity everyone had these 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 two windows these kind of every every house had these front two windows that you could look out on and and uh they um the basically in summer it was it was like a theater it was like each house had had its own little theater and you could as a kid as a 10 year old 12 year old 14 year old I, I walked down up and down that street all my life you would look in these windows and you would see it all I, I would see every social issue I would later write about as a journalist so you're seeing domestic violence you're seeing alcohol abuse you're seeing depression you know there was a guy two doors up who you know, tried to take his life and, you know, in his garage and, yeah, you know, the, the woman down around the corner stabbed a kid in the eye with a steel ruler and, and you were just picking up all these little bits and it's deeply, profoundly kind of life-shaping because you're getting a sense of a kind of other side of Australia. Like, like this, that city, Brisbane, is such a magical place. It's such a beautiful place to grow up. But it's something that I'm always fascinated in as a journalist is that behind those closed doors mate, there are all sorts of interesting mm. things and and a lot of darkness sometimes, a lot of brutality, a lot of brutality in the suburbs. Your dad, being the kind of man who was missing your mum, who would sing along with Leonard Cohen songs yeah, at, yeah. late at night and after yeah, a few drinks. Yeah. Did, did your mum ever come back and stay with you at any point? Look, um, oh, man, my oh my mum. You know, like I could go on about three hours with you, Richard, about my mum and her journey. You know, she's a woman who... Um, really pretty rough time of it as as a kid growing up in Sydney's kind of northern suburbs and and kind of went off on this whole amazing journey and she yeah basically came really strongly back into my life in my kind of late teens and it was a really good time for her too it was just when I needed a, a, a really wonderful female presence in my life because I was starting to to become a more rounded individual who wanted to sort of you know, learn more about women and about mm. girls and stuff. And she came in almost miraculously in a dark way. She was, it was a desperate time for her, but um, yeah, my, it was my brother, Jesse, who got the phone call. Um, we only took incoming calls at that house. We couldn't call out. Our phone didn't call out. So it's a really random thing. You couldn't really, it was hard to be contacted, but uh, got a phone call. Jesse answers. He talks and I realize, oh, he's talking to mum, and he puts the phone down and he, he then, this is my memory of it, he then turns to Dad and he says, Dad, Mum needs us. And, um, oh, sorry, it's getting me emotional just thinking about it, but, uh, you know, it probably didn't go like, Dad, Mum, you know, it's it basically Dad, that was Mum. You know, she needs you. And uh, she's got nowhere to stay. And uh, So what did your dad do? Well, my old man, who, who, a very deeply conflicting kind of moment for him because... He did the thing. He he basically showed the character that he has, and and his his first thing was to protect this woman that he loves. And um, first thing he goes, all right, jump in the car. 
And we go down and, and uh, yeah, mum's down at the, um, the Sandgate train station and, um, and she smiles at us and she's got the man, Richard, she, she looks like, she looks like Kylie Minogue in like the, I should be so lucky clip. You know, she's a beautiful woman and she smiled this most amazing smile. And I'll never forget. She was, she was missing one of her front teeth because of the fella she was with. And, um, so did your dad take her back in? And he took her back in and it was the most beautiful time. One of the most beautiful times of my life because, um, they were mum and dad. I got to see my, my mum and dad as a mum and dad. And, uh, and that was incredible. And, and I would sit in the lounge room and, They'd be up talking at the kitchen table, and, and I'd, I'd watch them. They, they they had the most extraordinary shorthand as these. They were two lovers, you know. Like, and and you realise, wow, like you two were kind of good together. Oh. You two would have been great together. You like no one knows you better than each other. Like, and it was amazing, Richard, for my brothers, all of us to see that. But for me in particular, because I'd never known that concept of mum and dad as a as a as a thing. But that couldn't last. That little interlude. It was. It was. It was never going to last. Even if. As much as I perhaps fantasized about it, they they became friends forever after that. You know, it was wonderful and a great support, and they'd talk on the phone, have their arguments as as you could probably imagine. But um, they it was kind of beautiful. They they sort of came together, and there were there were moments, you know, where good things would happen to me in my life, and they'd be there together to celebrate them. You know, my my first job, they'd pick me up together in the car, and we'd we'd talk. And it was it was so wonderful to have this kind of normal kind of family life for, for at least a little bit of my time as a, as a young man. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. You can find more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. was expected of you when you were going to leave school at the time? Oh, look, you, you know, as you can imagine, like you hear me talk about some of that stuff, some of that sort of dark stuff. I don't think anyone ever expects a lot. Famously, my, my dad on parent-teacher night spoke to my year six teacher and she said, Mr. Dalton, I'm terrified your son is going to become the leader of an outlaw motorcycle gang. It didn't happen. It, it didn't happen, it didn't thankfully. Happen. I don't think they would take me. I'm pretty thin and pasty and <laughs> I wouldn't add too much to the gang, I'd imagine. So what happened at the end of your school years anyway? Well, I, it's sort of tough to, you know, I was one of those kids. I spent basically all my my high school and school life looking out the window, you know, dreaming about stuff, and and you know, sp- spent it in in here inside my head, and and uh, yeah, and, I, and not a lot is expected of you. Um, I probably didn't try. I didn't apply myself. I I had definitely had a chip on my shoulder, like a real probably a shit of a kid, really. I, I you know, I really had a lot of amazing teachers at a particular school called Nashville High, um, and you know, a lot of amazing friends, and it was a school that had a lot of social issues surrounding at that school. And, um, but a lot of amazing teachers who looked after a lot of kids and really gave a damn. And, uh, were you aiming for, to go to uni or some kind of tertiary education or well, were you going to get a job elsewhere? Or what were you aiming for? I'll tell for? you one thing. I'll tell like basically all my friends, we, we, we all were heading to where a lot of my friends kind of went, which was the G James glass and aluminium factory in, in Eagle farm in Brisbane. And, uh, you know, that was a well-paid, doable gig cutting you know lengths of 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 metal um for various reasons various sort of structures across 
Australia. And, and were um, you just assuming you'd end up there? Was I kind of did. Yeah. I really did, Richard. Like, I just thought, yeah, you know what? I'm going to leave high school. I'll drink a bit and um, I'll smoke a lot. And, um, you know, I'll go to work and I'll, I'll, I'll bet on the races and I'll sit around, you know, I'll, and I'll, um, and I'll enjoy my life and I'll tell some stories and I might meet some girl and we'll have some kids. It's not a bad life. I mean, yeah, I suppose yeah, in, you know, in some it, ways. It it's not the that, life you have, but yeah, it's not, you know. Yeah, it was different, you know, but, and, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, I had these brothers. I had these brothers for some reason. I don't know why. I don't know why my eldest brother and, and Ben and Jess, all of them. They, they had something else in mind for their lives and something else in mind for me. My, my eldest brother, Joel, never accepted me being a douche. He just never accepted. I once told him, I remember it vividly. <clears throat> I was so proud of myself. I said, Joel, we never had money. So I said, Joel, I jumped the train. I got in the city. I was so sneaky. I jumped the train, Joel, and you, you would be so impressed. You should have seen me. I dodged all these ticket guys. And he goes, that's ridiculous. Why would you do that? You know, don't, don't do that. You know, and, and it was just this, these lessons that... He was constantly giving me, saying like, "Don't, don't uh, succumb," you know, to 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 certain paths that might have been presented to you at once at one point in your life. And low grade, very very petty criminality, just dodgy yeah, stuff. Yeah. Because the next thing you you know, and, and then but that that applied too. Like like dead set, literally like, don't try drugs, you idiot. Were you, you know? interested in writing at that point? Well, for for a long time I wasn't because all I wanted to be was um, Wally Lewis. I basically all I wanted to be up until about fourteen was genuinely I thought I had a crack at playing for the Queensland State of Origin team, despite the fact I'm built like you know a twig. But it was all I wanted to do, and I, and I happened to sort of. Sadly, I have this really thin skull, like a dead set have a thin skull. I used to get concussion all the time, played for the great Brighton Roosters, and and Dad would have to take me to the RBH, the Royal Brisbane Hospital, and the neurosurgeon absolutely did like CAT scans on me, and he just turned to Dad. Well, I remember it vividly, and he just said, your son can't play rugby league anymore. He's done. Don't ever let him play. And, um, and that was it. And I, I reckon around then it kind of, you know, thankfully coincided with the time where I sort of was starting to – probably have a few crushes on some interesting girls at school. And what comes with that is, is, is your poetry. heart. Poetry. Poetry. Yeah. Bad poetry, Richard. Bad poetry, yeah. Like I would, I'd sit around writing bad yeah. poems. Like I, had, I wrote this poem called Battery Operated Heart. It was, you know, it was about, you know, various girls who break your heart and, you know, it's, it's just stupid stuff, but you're finally expressing. And, you, and, and I started to realise, like the one thing I could do at school was I was okay at English and I had teachers who sort of said, you know what, you're not bad at this, mate. You know, stop being a dickhead and, and try and, you know, you know, use that brain of yours for this writing stuff that you're not bad at. You did get that kind of factory work, didn't you, or that yeah, kind of manual yeah. work? Yeah. First, I got a really bad OP leaving high school, um, uh, OP being like a, like a TE score in Queensland, um, really bad. And so I couldn't really get into the any uni course that I wanted to get into. I was, I'd, I was forming a sense that I wanted to be a journalist because I read lots of Rolling Stone um, magazines about some of my favourite bands, which were largely from Seattle, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Soundgarden. Um and I'd sort of had this idea, like I'd love being a long-form journalist to do those sort of stories, but I couldn't, I didn't have the marks to do it. So yeah, I got a job packing auto electrical parts in a, in a little sort of small, you know, business shed, basically in industrial Brisbane. Well, that allows you to daydream though, Mate, it? Mate, it was yeah. just daydream. It was the most yeah. amazing, they're beautiful people who ran this, they're most amazing people and like lovely, salt of the earth, wonderful, caring people. So how did that all change though? How did you then go and do a writing course? After so then I'm, I'm there, basically I'd, I'd, I would pack these things called terminals, which I don't even know where they go underneath the car bonnet, Richard, but I would 
pack them into bags of 100 every day, staring at a brown wall, packing these things into bags, and all you're doing is thinking about what you're going to do with your life. And, and it, all these things start to evolve in your head, and you go, hang on, I could actually do some really good stuff. I could, I could write something really important maybe one day. And, and, it, and it really does then start to sort of go, yep, you know what, damn it, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to spend my, the rest of my life packing terminals into bags of 100. And then I get into a, a course at the University of Southern Queensland and, uh, and build and just convince myself, like, I am going to try like I've never tried before. And um, my, my eldest brother, Joel, again, King Arthur, gives me the money to get up and uh, pays, gives me 500 bucks to, to buy my textbooks um, and get my sort of the money that I need to go to uni. And um, I go and boost my OP up to one and get into the, into the writing course. You got I an OP1, go did Built you? it up to an OP1. Right. You, need, you needed an OP1 to get into this really great course that QUT were doing, which was creative writing. And it was basically feature writing, news writing mixed with a bit of screenwriting as well. And it was just this wonderful first-of-its-kind kind of writing course they were doing. And, and, and what was the first feature you wrote? So then I have this um, amazing tutor named Chris Olson, who's now one of Australia's great novelists. Um, and she sets us this feature-writing task. And she goes, go write about some interesting people. I, You know, the most interesting person in my life is my old man. I go straight to him. I go, you know anyone I could probably do this on? He goes, ah, talk to Alan across the road. He's living in Bribe Island, this little housing commission kind of unit in, in Bribe Island by this time. I call this guy Alan. He's an old tent tent boxer, like Fred Brophy's tent boxing, right? He used to fight in these tent boxing shows. I go and do this massive interview with Alan. He's he's just, you know, he's drinking, you know, daytime drinking. I'm I'm just soaking up all these details and all this story from this beautiful, interesting man. I write it up into this you know, it's pretty vivid kind of interesting story about the world of, of tent boxing across mm. Australia and, you know, outback Australia. And and Chris Olsen, it's the moment where she picks up like a frozen fish and slaps me over the head with it because we all need that sometimes. And she just writes at the bottom of this assignment, Trent, you need to be a magazine writer. And that's that. And I took that advice. And it was the most amazing, profound, direct thing I've ever, I've ever sort of read. And someone finally went, mate, this is what you need to do. Both Christina Olsen and Fred Brophy have been guests on this program too. Oh, Just, that, that's incredible. Both of them very different and amazing well, stories yeah, to tell. Yeah, Christine like, shaped my life, yeah. So how did you meet Fiona, the woman who was to become your wife, Trent? A uh, little local colour magazine in Brisbane called Brisbane News. Lovely woman named Judith Angarasimov and a friend of mine, Elspeth Costello. They they were looking for they were the editors of of Brisbane News and they were looking for a, you might call it a shit kicker role. It was like a someone who does sort of all of the little bookends where where basically where an ad can't be fit into a magazine into a mm. space and you need to fill it with words. And so basically you need a young junior kind of journo writer, guy who can string a couple of words together to fill those holes. And and uh, I got a job on on Brisbane News and it was it was uh, it was January ten. 2000, um, Judith Ann takes us to a cafe. I really, I've never been to a, like a cafe basically up to that point. And, uh, she takes us to this fancy cafe in New Farm, Brisbane. And I sit down and it's around lunchtime and all the people who worked at this magazine are, uh, uh, having coffees and, and in walks this girl and, uh, she walks around the table and there's a space next to me. She sits down, she smiles like, you know, like the morning sunrise. And I just go, this girl in my head, I'm saying this girl's going to sort of mean something to me. Some, I don't know. I don't know what it was. And I, I just had this fe- the feeling that she was going to mean something to me. And, uh, and yeah, that was, that was my wife, Fiona. And she was, uh, she was a sub editor on, on Brisbane news. And she was the one that the most amazing thing she ever did for me. 
I was always getting my apostrophes in the wrong place. I was sending over copy with with bad apostrophes, Richard, like horrible, like murder, you know, I murdered apostrophes. And one day she sits me down after work and she goes, Trent, come here. You're not leaving here until you've mastered the apostrophe. <laughs> and it was then that I fell in love with it. I was just like, this girl is just amazing. So you travel quite a long way, I suppose, socially. I mean, there's, I'm always interested in this, where, where if that distance is such a very big distance in Australia as opposed to the United States or, or the UK, for example, going from Housing Commission flat and out of suburban Brisbane oh. to writing for uh, you know, clever newspaper articles for, for people in the inner city. Is, yeah, that, how is, interesting. That big, is that a big distance or for you or what, what do you think of that? That's so interesting. I, yeah, I, I don't think it's big. I don't think it's as big as perhaps some kid out and... You know, I don't know. Let's say there's some kid. I want to make this sound like, you know, I hope it doesn't sound like a Bruce Springsteen song, but it's like, I hope there is some kid out there thinking, who is thinking that distance might be big. You know, it, it really isn't. And, and the distance is only in your mind. And and you, the first thing you, you get over is that idea that that, that isn't available to you, that, that you you are also open to that. You know, that you deserve that just as much as any other Aussie kid, you know. And I think once you, once you cross that divide, then it's really close, you know, and and it is only a matter of you know just a way of seeing seeing sort of through the suburbs and going, oh, hang on, yeah, I can't I can't access all those things, and but but that's everything. Like everything's wrapped up in that. It's about opening your whole mind up to experience, and then you travel a bit, and then you you go somewhere overseas, and then that opens you up even more, and then every little point you start going, no, that's available to me too, and I'm going to get some of that as well. Is there something in your childhood that makes you? A good watcher, a good observer. Oh wow! Of of particularly of of people like Alan across the road, who was a tent boxer back in the day. Yeah, people yeah. who aren't famous, who 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 are kind of had these unfamous lives, but yeah. uh, are nonetheless completely fascinating. Ah, oh, the extraordinary in the ordinary. I yeah. mean, that, the magnificent in the mundane. I it, love so, that. So, is there something in your in your in your childhood, maybe a, a very watchful childhood, like I alluded to right at the beginning, that oh, makes yeah. you kind of a careful yeah. observer of people because you just don't really quite know what's going to happen unless you watch people closely. Oh, wow, Richard. Yeah, that's that's such a oh, that's such a kind of insightful point, mate. Yeah, well, look, you know, when I was a kid, my old man told, tells me this great story. You know, we're living in this, uh, you know, this place out at Middlemount for a while there. Dad was working sort of helping to build houses for mines and stuff. And and I he, he found me once staring at a puddle and... I was just, and he, he, he genuinely thought I was kind of like deaf and dumb, like kind of like touched, I think. And I was really a quiet kid for a long time. Like I, I don't remember really saying a word until like I was about seven or eight, you know, like I didn't really offer much. And I think he was a bit worried about me that I was a bit sort of funny in the head. And all, but all of that was just me observing. Like I was really genuinely just watching things. And I know I'd, it's amazing you say that about observation and, and that sense of, like there was definitely times in those, you know, those darker days where, you know, people would be on the terps or you'd be in in an unsettling situation. You need to be hyper vigilant. You know, you're you're just looking out, you're looking for cues, you're you're spotting details, you're spotting the way people are reacting to things. You you know, your old man might be saying, or you're spotting the way he's reacting to things. And and I could pick it. I could pick things instantly, and I could see stories happening, unfolding, just from a, a small detail. And I, I do think that love of details has really stayed with me, but it's amazing you say that because I really do think maybe, maybe there is something in that, in that kind of, you're just watching because, you know, you have to watch sometimes. And I guess, I guess my brothers were probably really good at that as well. You know, those great watchers who just, because they they have to protect, you know, the youngest as well, which was, which me at the time. 
You spent two days writing a feature for, uh, I think it was Q Weekend or the Courier Mail, uh, with the Dalai Lama. <laughs> yeah. The Dalai Lama, you spent two days with one of the world's great spiritual and religious leaders, <laughs> uh, the boy from Brackenridge. What did you really want to ask him? Oh, Rich, oh, that was amazing. Like that, That's, yeah, two days in the Dalai Lama's entourage. It was quite remarkable. And, and I, at the end of these two days... I got to sit down, you know, for an hour with the great man himself. And uh, I had I had to ask him, you know, and this is something I've asked myself all my, you know, my entire life, you know, why are we here? And I put it to him like that, like, why am I here, right? And what I was saying was, why are we all here? Why is why is Richard Feidler, why is Trent Dalton here? And, and I, I, I didn't mean myself personally, but this man, you know, this is the character of that guy. He he pulls me in, right? He, he, he leans over in his chair and he goes, Trent, come, come, come. And he starts like... He's whispering, like, come come closer. And there's this incredible guy who's standing to the left of him, right? It's like the Dalai Lama's bodyguard. And this guy looks like, you know, monkey from monkey magic, like, but except he's in this sharp black suit. This guy looked like a ninja who could kill you with three fingers <laughs> any day. And he was his security guard. And he points, he points at this security guard and he goes, you are here to tell his story. And then there was a woman who was setting up some lights in the other sort of inner corner of the room for a sort of a TV thing later. And he points at her and he goes, you were here to tell her story. And I'm like nodding. And, I'm, and, and then he points at himself. He comes in really close and he goes, and you were here to tell my story. And he goes, and when you tell those stories, we learn. And I was like, wow, like the Dalai Lama, he's told me exactly what I'm here for. That's all I have to do. You know, like that, that was deeply profound for me. Like that's all I have to do. And I was like, it made, it all made sense because you wonder as a journalist, like where is all this going, all this talk and all these conversations, all these, all these long form stories, where is it going? Well, yeah, it's going towards learning and sharing and, and putting yourself at the service of other people. That's interesting. It's kind of an out, out of directed life he's pointing at here. Isn't that's it? what he's no. saying. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. He's, he's, yeah, don't, don't, yeah, don't worry about it because that's doing something. That's helping us know yeah. about each other. He's not telling you to climb to the top of Mount Kutha and sit up there in the nude for a month. No, and, and, uh, exactly. And, and look into your own, own soul. Exactly. Yeah. He's saying do your yeah. thing and that's what you for do. For other people. That's what you've been doing. Yeah, and that is, that will be a service because it, it may be, maybe it might touch someone. The other interesting end of the spectrum, you went to do a, a interview Ivan Malat's brother, Alex Malat. Uh, what, what was the idea for the story there? Uh, Trent. Well, I, I love, you know, I'm a firm believer, Richard, in, uh, you know, in journalism that you get yourself in sticky situations. Like a, a good journalism, good writing comes from sticky situations often. You know, the great writers are always, you know, the great investigative writers are always putting themselves in really dangerous situations. But even a feature writer can put themselves in a sticky situation. I wanted to write a story about the concept of guilt by association. So the idea that, yeah, it's like your Alex Malat, brother of Ivan Malat, is kind of tainted his whole life by just being the brother of Ivan Malat. So I was going around talking to all sorts of people, like family members of, of, of murderers, family members of, you know, fraudsters, and I was just piecing together this story on guilt by association. So, so, did, so did you go out to his place? I go out to his place. I called him on the phone a number of times, begged for a sit-down, you know, interview, and uh, and I, I go into my editor, Christine Midat, best editor in the world, and I say... Christine, I'm, um, I'm going to Alex Malat's house and he lives in the sort of backwoods of Sunshine Coast at this point. And she's like, look, make sure you call me when you, when you, when you come back out of the house. Because, you know, like me, look, I, you know, no offence to the Malat family. Like, I just, I was slightly on edge about going to do this because I just didn't know what I was going to find. And so I go in, 
walk up some stairs. There's Alex Malat. <laughs> he's got no shirt on, massive beer belly. He's in some stubby shorts. And I go into his house and this is details again, details. And there's on and perspective. I love, I love perspective because in his lounge room, he had a framed picture of Ivan Malat <laughs> right near his television, oh, like framed oh, family photos. And like, of course, right. he loves his brother. His brother. Right. Then he starts, we start sitting down. We have this long conversation, long time. We talk for two hours and he starts telling me about how he considers really strange sort of beliefs. He sort of was equating the killing of a snake to the killing of a human being. And I thought, well, I was sort of saying, Alex, look, I don't think you can really say that, mate. And he's sort of saying this is a product of his upbringing. He had a really horrible dad and who really sort of was tough on the kids. And he got really angry. He started to get angry with my kind of questioning of this philosophy. And he goes, step out that back door, go. And uh, I'm like, what? And he goes, go out there, go out there. And I'm like, what? And he had this sort of back door that went out to a landing. <laughs> and then a set of stairs that went down. You know, I'm down like there was no, it was like that, it was that deep kind of afternoon where no one's in, in the suburbs. You know, those those afternoons at three o'clock where like no one feels like no one's around. Yes, it's airless and it's strange. It's airless yes, and strange yes, and it's quiet right. and silent. And I walk down these back stairs <laughs> and there's this one of those little dugout sort of entryways down into like a half a door that you have to duck down under to get in under into Alex Malat's basement. And um, I'm walking down and I'm like, wow, this is like, and, and underneath it's dusty and there's cobwebs. And there's all this machinery and it's like this dark sort of thing. And I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing? And he goes, yeah, you go, keep going, keep going. He's like, walk ahead. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And all I'm doing, I'm looking, I'm looking down and there's like a hammer placed really strangely on the mm. corner of a thing. I'm going, why is that hammer there like that? And he goes, keep going, keep going. Eventually we get to a big machine and it's like this medieval contraption and he starts pulling some levers, squashes down some metal, picks up a piece of metal and hands it to me, and it's a bullet. He goes, see, it's my bullet-making machine. He just, <laughs> want, he just wanted to show me his, where he makes bullets. He, he was a... Um, what? what? Yeah, no, he, I'm done. Yeah, <laughs> he, was, he was a big fan of the, like, you know, he, he was a rifle. He was a sort of a shooting guy into shooting, like, you know, like competitive shooting. So he made his own bullets. And, yeah, deep in my possessions, Richard, I've got Alex Malat's bullet that he gave me. You know, a little <laughs> beautiful souvenir of a life well lived, hopefully. Yeah. Was he toying with you a bit? Do you I, think? Th I think he was. I think trying he to make was. you feel frightened. And yeah, he was brilliantly playing up the the mythology, right? I mean, yeah, he was brilliant. But I'm there, of course. Of course, me. I'm I'm just looking for the story. You, you keep going, right? You keep going under. You go. Yeah, this is pretty scary, but I'm going to keep going because I know the copy. The copy is going to be so good. I'm just going. This is going to read so well. You did a, a feature story on Anthony Hopkins, yeah, famous actor yeah, who played Hannibal yeah, Lecter while, yeah, while, while yeah, we're here. Yeah. Uh, 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 what you wrote, what did you actually want to include in that story that you didn't actually write on Anthony I wanted, Hopkins? I wanted to write about how much, you know, that guy, how what a wonderful actor he was, how, speaking of my old man, like he was a big fan of the Thomas Harris, Science of the Lambs books. And, you know, I, was a, I really admired the guy. But, you know, you go in there and, you know, the, the the way these actors end up being sometimes is different to how you see them in your mind. So I go in there and I just, I start off asking him, you know, I've got 42 questions to ask Anthony Hopkins that I've written out, really delicate, intriguing, probing questions. The first one I say is some question about how Jodie Foster actually thought he was really kind of Hannibal Lecter. Like famously, she actually was genuinely terrified of him. Like it, she, she thought like there was an element of him that was sort of Hannibal Lecter. And, and then he just goes... Acting is rubbish. And uh, that's all. He gives me three words. I've got to go back and write a 2,000-word, uh, you know, story on the great Anthony Hopkins and all I've got is acting is rubbish. And then he comes oh, Sorry, back. that's all he, he gives me, Basically right. all, yeah. all he gives yeah. me because then he goes, 
what I'm really interested in, Trent, is tell me about these redback spiders that you have in in this country. And tell me about these funnel web spiders and the box jellyfish, right? He was really interested in things that could kill you in Australia. I'm going, Anthony, I can't, we need to talk about you. And we, we spent, I had eight minutes in one of those horrible sort of cattle call sort of interviews to get 2,000 words worth of good kind of interesting conversation. And all I had was acting as rubbish. But he was doing all these interesting non-verbal things. So he was, as he was talking to me, he was like, he was picking the gunk out of his fingernails and like flicking it across <laughs> the carpet. And one little bit, I swear, like it bounced off my kneecap. And I'm going, this is crazy. And basically I went back to, to Brisbane. I had nothing. But what I had is is the moment, like all the description, all the detail. And I turned that into a story. And, and this beautiful guy who happened to be Hayley Lewis's dad who worked for Queensland newspapers at the time, he came up and he said, that stuff you wrote about him flicking the gunk, that was brilliant. And it, it changed how I write, you know. It was, it was like you can you can paint the scene, you can do anything in, in a feature story. Tell me, Trent, about the box jellyfish <laughs> of Australia. Exactly, it was, yeah. Tell oh, me I, about the mate, funnel web. Exactly, exa- I wanted to grab him. Is like, quid pro quo, Hopkins, quid pro quo. <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to. He just he wasn't giving. Are the Redbacks still screaming? <laughs> Anthony Hopkins. Are the they? silence of the Redbacks. The silence of the Redbacks. So your life now, like I said, right at the start, you've gone from this <laughs> the blokiest house probably in Brackenridge oh. to a, a, a very, very feminine house now. How's how's how is that? Oh working man. Out for you? I, I, I live in a house with, you know, a beautiful wife and, and I and two girls. I've got two girls, aged eleven and nine. And it's the it's the softest sweetest, most tender house you could ever live in. And they are so sweet, my kids. And they hear fragments of this crazy past and they sort of have with this book I've written and they just sort of go, oh, wow, dad. And, you know, and but they do it in the most beautiful way. They'll come up to me and go, I'm sorry, dad, to hear that. You know, like, and they'll, they'll, they'll stroke my hair and they'll just, they'll share their love in the most beautiful ways, Richard. And, and it's like, it, it inspires me. And, and that whole book I've done was written on the thrilling thought and and motivating thought of what what if I never met those two? What if I never met those two girls? My life just would be so poorly lived and and not so rich, you know, and enriched by those two. And it's sort of that's what that whole book. That's why I wanted to write that book for them. And how and, about your dad? Did your dad get to spend time with his granddaughters? Oh man, he, he was he was beautiful with them. You know, they called him Papa, and you know, the, the back end of his life, he. He, you know, he he quit the. He firstly he went on to mid strength beers, which was huge, and then he really sort of stopped drinking a lot. And he was just this guy who just lived for his grandkids, you know. And he just he just lived for all the people in his neighbourhood. And he ducked down to the local sort of op shop and talked to the ladies who ran the op shop. And he's just a beautiful, beautiful man who, you know, he died very happy, knowing that his kids were extremely grateful for for everything, every facet of it, because it's it's just enriched us. I've so been enriched by your story today, Trent. That's been just beautiful. There you go. There's seamless, seamless segue there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Trent. What an it's been honor. Such a it's a true honor, Richard. Thanks for having me, mate. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au/slash conversations.